Hello, and welcome back to another exciting episode of Paranormal Stories and Spooky Shiz. I'm your host, Chappie, and let's get started. Hello, and as we jump right into our subject today, it is on cannibalism. What a macabre subject matter. But believe it or not, many people still practice it today. And there's also spiritual rituals and even demons involved sometimes. All right, so let's start by playing a video that I got from True TV um, of their show Fameless, where, you know, a judge is fed, uh, hopefully, shark liver, human flesh, hopefully not, or something else in the sausage. So let's, let's listen. All right, chef, can you tell us the three secret ingredients that might be found in this amazing sausage that you made for us today? The three secret ingredients that might be found in the sausage are fish liver, human flesh, or shark. I, is this, it, are those really the three ingredients? Yeah, uh, fish liver, human flesh, or shark. You guys, is, is this, is that, is that, and that's just that there's, you know, there's a stigma surrounding we this clear, particular We're good, we're good, we're good, we're good, we're good, we're good, let's go on right, please. Um, all right, uh, yo, thank you, Kiff, thank you very much. All right, Joe, fish liver, shark, or human flesh. God help you, it better be shark. All right, two, what do you think it's going to be? Shark two. Shark? The liver is like too obvious, and I don't think it's human flesh, so I think it's shark. Um, Chef Keith, can you tell us what uh, is the secret ingredient in this dish? Yes, I'm afraid you're both wrong. It is human flesh. No. No. Um, Whoa. That- not okay. That's no, not all right. You know, it's I a don't... wonderful renewable protein. That... Whoa, whoa. Hey, yeah, all right. No, that's and sir, no. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't know it was going to no, go like this no, either. No, that's this really disgusting. Chef, Chef, are you serious? Yeah, of course. That's, I'm, I'm I'm going to go throw up. I didn't know we were going there. Are you so, okay? I'm going to go throw up. I need a bucket. Hold, wait. Just have a, can you, here, we'll get you something right now. Yeah, bring a bucket in. You guys, come on, get a bucket in here right now. <laughs> bring a bucket in here. You okay? Yeah. That's some next level though. So, I would have loved to know when I was eating human flesh before I ate it. This is very popular in my restaurant. You thought it was delicious. You said it was delicious, and I think there's a stigma about it. Think about it. Every day, 60,000 new sources of protein in this country alone. Would, like, someone what? die and then what? you make it? How else would we make it? Oh, God. I mean, many small villages. All right, all right, all right. I apologize very much for this. We're going to stop shooting this right now. We're going to do another show called Fameless. It's Davis Bates, new prank show. Thank <laughs> God. Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> okay, so ultimately that ended up being a prank. But that is the video that I saw that I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> um,. Because there are some, as I've done some research, and it almost felt like a little dark whenever I was doing this research. 
<laughs> I'm sure I'm on a list somewhere now because I was like, is it legal to eat human flesh? Is it illegal to purchase human flesh? <laughs> like, I was like, oh my gosh, they probably have my whole Google history. <laughs> Tap now. It's going to be a bunch of spooky stuff and cannibalism from here on out. All right. So after listening to that short thing, I think she very much reacted the way most of us would react, which is repulsion and being like, I should have been told before I ate human flesh that it was human flesh. Because I don't know, just before we dive into anything, me personally, I find it taboo. Like, I find it very taboo. It's something I've never had any desire to do. But strangely enough, I have had a friend that told me one time uh, when we were both working at Chick-fil-A, she said that if she would eat any part of the human body, it would be the muscle that the thumb is attached to because she said it would be the most tender piece of meat. And that was always a weird thing for her to say, but <laughs> I still remember it. It was cool. So with that in mind, uh, let's jump into some of the articles that we've procured today. Jump into the spooky and bizarre and deathly macabre. If you have a weak stomach, you might want to skip this episode. All right. With that being said, let's jump over into our first article. Live Science. The Zombie Diet, 10 Real-Life Examples of Humans Eating Humans. This was written by Kimberly Hickok in 2020. All right. In any zombie horror story, the undead human corpses roam the world in their hunt for human flesh. Now we know zombies aren't real, but human cannibalism is far from fictional. Here are 10 real-life examples of human flesh eaters that are just about as horrifying as zombies themselves. Number one, our prehistoric ancestors. Cannibalism goes way, way back, around 900,000 years ago, in what is now Spain. Homo antecessor, an ancient relative of humans, practiced cannibalism, likely out of practicality, according to the study published in June 2019 in the Journal of Human Evolution. Fellow hominins were moderately nutritious and easy to catch, making them an excellent prey option. Number two, Neanderthals. Our more recent prehistoric ancestors, our closer and more recent relatives, the Neanderthals, were also cannibals on occasion. Archaeologists have discovered evidence of Neanderthal cannibalism in a few different spots around the world, including a cave in El Cidron, Spain, another cave at Mula Gursi, France, and most recently at a cave in Belgium. Beyond cannibalism, it appears the Neanderthals also made tools out of their comrades' remains. Number three, the Bami or Biami people of Papua New Guinea. There are a few isolated cultures in Papua New Guinea known to have killed and eaten humans, although they likely haven't practiced cannibalism for several decades. In 2011, British television host Pierce Gibbon visited the Baimi people, 
a group who once practiced cannibalism, and we're very happy to talk about it, Gibbon said. An older member of the tribe told Gibbon about one instance where members of the tribe killed two women suspecting of speaking ill of a dying husband. The man said they roasted the women over the fire like pigs and cut up their flesh to eat it. Number four, the four people of Papua New Guinea. The practice of cannibalism in another Papua New Guinea tribe, the four, F-O-R-E, people, led to the spread of a fatal brain disease called Kuru that caused a devastating epidemic in the group. But not all members of the tribe died. Some of them carry a gene that protects against Kuru and other prion diseases, such as mad cow. The tribe stopped practicing cannibalism in the 1950s, which led to a decline in Kuru. But because the disease can take many years to show up, cases of Kuru continued to pop up for decades. Researchers are working to understand how the genetic mutation works to prevent Kuru and gather new insights into how to prevent prion diseases. Oh, I'm going to tear apart this name, but the Xi-Mez people of Mexico is spelled X-I-X-I-M-E-S. The Xi-Mez, I don't know. In 2011, archaeologists reported finding dozens of human bones bearing marks of cannibalism at the ancient Xi-Mez settlement of Cuavas del Maguey in northern Mexico. The bones were found inside shelters dating back to early 1400s, National Geographic reported. The Zizimes believed that eating the flesh of their enemies would ensure a prolific grain harvest. Number six, the Aztec people of Mexico. The Aztecs are well known for having performed ritual human sacrifices, but there's also evidence that they engaged in ritualistic cannibalism. History reported, the bodies of sacrificed victims were likely presented to noblemen and other distinguished members of the community. Some experts suggest cannibalism among the Aztec may have been more common during famine. Another theory posits that cannibalism was their way of communing with the gods. All right, number seven, the Wari people of Brazil. The Wari people of Brazil practice cannibalism of their war enemies and their own dead. Eating their enemies was a way of expressing hatred and anger, but the group also consumed a vast majority of their dead up until the 1960s. For them, it was a way of mourning, honoring, and respecting the deceased members of their tribe. Beth A. Conklin, an anthropologist at Vanderbilt University, lived with the Wari for more than a year and published her description of the Wari tribe's history of cannibalism in the journal American Ethnologist in 1995. Number eight, 16th and 17th century Europeans. Until the end of the 18th century, it was not uncommon for Europeans to seek the flesh of a dead human for medicinal consumption, Smithsonian reported. For example, Paracelsus, a 16th century physician, believed blood was healthy to drink. Although drinking fresh blood was uncommon, people unable to afford apothecary products would stand by 
at executions and pay a small fee for a cup of fresh blood from the condemned. Wow. Number 9. 19th Century Arctic Explorers There are several stories of stranded explorers resorting to cannibalism in a desperate attempt to survive. One of the most famous examples is the doomed 19th century Franklin expedition that aimed to discover a sea route through the Canadian Arctic. Explorers from the two trap ships, the HMS Erebus and the HMS Terror, attempted to trek 1,000 miles to the nearest trading post, but their efforts were futile. For the next 150 years, researchers uncovered the explorers' remains. Scientists found cut marks on many of the bones, signs of breakage and marrow extraction, convincing evidence of cannibalism. Alright, number 10, the Angori Cult of India. The Angoris make up a small group of extremists who live in Varansi, India, and worship the Hindu deity, Shiva. The Angoris believe there is no difference between pure and impure, and engage in many obscure practices, such as meditating on top of corpses and making bowls out of human skulls. They also practice ritual cannibalism, according to some reports. Alright, very cool. Alright, let's go over to... One thing that attracted my eye, which is the Human Meat Project. Let's go back to the home page. All right. So it basically starts off with a video that's like nine seconds long, but it just shows Human Meat Project, people for meat people. And below it, it says... One body can feed up to 40 people based on the average weight of 55 kilograms, height 165 centimeters. Together we could end world starvation, overpopulation, and climate change. Donate now. <laughs> so while this is an alarming uh, thing, um, let's read what this website has to say. And then we can wrap it up with pretty much debunking this website. But it says human meat as food source. The practice of cannibalism is not uncommon in living beings. In both the animal kingdom and our human history, the consumption of one's own species has existed. During the discovery of the new world, Christopher Columbus brought back what could be seen as early evidence of cannibalistic practices in modern civilization. The word cannibal comes from the name the Spanish gave to the Carib, the cannibals. The Spanish accused the Caribbean tribe of ritualistically consuming their enemies, but modern-day scholars have doubts that it actually happened. They speculate the Caribs were engaged in anti-colonial battle with a host of European powers. Many historians now argue that the cannibalism rumors were just propaganda tactic by the Spanish meant to provoke fear. The word cannibal was used as a derogatory term to describe tribal and native people and became an indirect ethnic slur. Human meat donation vision and mission. 
In order to save the planet from our impact of our modern society and lifestyle, we have to make a change in our ideas about consumption and our dietary choices. We face climate change due to waste, pollution, deforestation, and overpopulation problems. By donating your body for human consumption, you are taking direct action to help others lessen the damage of the industrial age. By consuming human meat, we create a change both in our life and the world. By improving the standard quality of life in every country and nation, we can give everyone in the world a good life. Wow, this is crazy. All right, human meat nutrition facts. Again, this is supposed to not be real, so I'll get to that in a little. All right. Human meat, often understated for its nutrition's human meat protein and fat density could be the same or better than other convenient meat like beef, chicken, and pork. As omnivore, human meat taste texture is similar to pork, not to mention the quality could be more substantial. Let's see. One body contains essential amino, minerals, and vitamins needed for daily intake. Do, do, do. Human meat is cruelty and slaughter-free. Well, that's good. <laughs> for now. All right. Safety and quality control. Quality of life is a rating of the human meat quality. It's just a bunch of weird stuff that they're talking about. But it also gives you an option to make a donation. Why donate? Who can donate? Living donation. A meat donor card. An end date and a harvest time. This is crazy. Privacy and consent. A donors list. You can look up by country and age and everything. So, if what I'm reading in other articles is correct, it all has to do with uh, the terms and conditions section, which is at the very bottom of the page. So... It basically says, this is purely a conceptual art project and will not be acted out in real life. <laughs> the Human Meat Project merely provides conceptual artwork. It's still a little too close for comfort for my liking, but I get what they're trying to do. They're trying to say that we never read the terms and conditions of what we're signing up for in our digital age. We pretty much sign our lives away without even reading what it's about. And people will only see that this is a fake website if they go to the terms and conditions. That's just from reading other articles about it. If you want to check that out, it's the humanmeatproject.com. And it's a little too, uh, I want to say, rosy. A little too, like, making it down to earth. But you're really talking about cannibalism still. <laughs> so that makes me uncomfortable. So let us move on. All right. Is it legal to eat human flesh? By Richard Dahl. These authors are describing what it tastes like, and it's really gross. Like fully developed veal, William Seabrook, author and journalist who spent time with a cannibal tribe in West Africa in the 1920s. Like pork, it tastes quite good. Armin Maywes, a German who ate a large portion of a man who agreed to be killed and devoured in 2002. So Sweet, Egyptian-born fashion model Omema Nelson 
described the cooked ribs of the abusive husband whom she killed in 1991. Despite these rave reviews, it's probably safe to assume that most people won't be inspired to find out for themselves anytime soon, which is not surprising. What is surprising, however, is the fact that in the U.S. there are no actual laws per se, with one exception, that prohibit the, cons prohibit the consumption of human flesh. In 49 states, you can at least theoretically eat human flesh and drink human blood in full view of a policeman and suffer no legal consequences. But if you try that in Ohio, the one exception, you could spend up to 14 years behind bars. What the law does and doesn't say about cannibalism. The absence of anti-cannibalism -can statutes, again, for the most part, doesn't mean, however, that the law is looking the other way. For starters, of course, you can't kill someone and eat them. It doesn't matter whether the person agrees to be killed. Even with consent, it's still murder. Second, laws for forbid desecration of corpses. But as Reuters revealed the extensive 2017 expose, if you really want to buy human body parts, you can probably do so. While the National Organ Transplant Act of 1984 prohibits the buying and selling of organs for transplantation, Reuters found that there's no laws on organs used for educational or research is pretty lax. In most states, anyone can legally purchase body parts. But be forewarned, in addition to questions about edibility, the prices for human body would be a deal breaker for most aspiring cannibals. In 2018, Westward newspaper examined the body trade in Colorado and found, for example, that one purveyor charged $200 for an elbow and $600 for an arm and a shoulder. Some people, however, have found affordable legal ways to indulge in cannibalism. Eat parts of yourself. That's what a Reddit user calling himself incredibly shiny shark did last year after his foot was amputated following a motorcycle accident, and the surgeon let him keep it. He invited friends over for dinner, which included tacos made from his foot meat. Their assessment of the flavor was beefy. That is so crazy. I'm feeling I'm not going to be hungry after this episode. <laughs> so we go over to The Guardian, where they have an article, Eating people is wrong, but is it against the law? This was written by Homa Khalili. Jose Salvador Avaringa is accused of eating his travel companion to survive being lost at sea. If it were true, he wouldn't be the first to consume human flesh in extreme circumstances. Has Jose Salvador Avaringa been reaching for the fava beans and Chianti? I don't know what that means. The 36-year-old sailor survived at sea for more than a year after being cast adrift by a storm. But now the family of his fellow sailor, 22-year-old Ezekiel Cordoba, says the older man turned cannibal to survive. Alvaringa insists Cordoba died because he could not stomach the raw birds and turtle blood that were their only source of food. But Cordoba's family are suing the Salvadorian fishermen for $1 million for eating their relative. It would not be the first time a survivor in extreme circumstances had tucked in to a fellow traveler. After a plane crash in the Andes in 1972, passengers ate the frozen remains of those who perished, surviving 72 days before they were rescued. In 2000, three migrants from the Dominican Republic survived for three weeks when their boat engine failed at sea, 
only by devouring some of the 60 others who succumbed to dehydration and exposure. But is eating someone's flesh in such extreme conditions against the law? Not in the UK, according to Samantha Pegg, senior lecturer at Nottingham Trent University. There's no offense of cannibalism in our jurisdiction, Dr. Pegg says. She points out that Avarenga's story is similar to a famous case in legal history. In 1884, a four-man crew sailing from England to Australia were shipwrecked with almost no food. When the 17-year-old cabin boy became ill, two of the men, Stevens and Dudley, decided to kill and eat him. Five days later, they were rescued and charged with murder. The third man was not charged, despite eating his companion's flesh. Although the lawyers argued that killing the cabin boy was necessity for the survival of the three other men, Stevens and Dudley were convinced of murder, or convicted of murder, and sentenced to death, later commuted to six months imprisonment. This set a precedent that no necessary, there is no necessity defense for murder, points out Peg. In cases of serial killers or sexually motivated cannibals, the charge is always murder, she says. In Germany, where there is no, also no offense of cannibalism, a court had to wrestle with a case where a man offered himself to be killed and consumed by an IT expert named Armin Weiwis. Weiwis was still convicted of murder. Last year, a German police officer was sentenced to eight and a half years for a similar crime of murdering and disturbing the peace of the dead. However, because his victims was said to be willing, he was not given the maximum sentence. Other would-be cannibals could face charges of outraging public decency or preventing a lawful burial, says Pegg. In 1988, performance artist Rick Gibson ate human tonsils on the street. He claimed to be the first cannibal in British history to legally eat human meat in public. With a rise in the body food and eating your partner's placenta, he may not be the last. All right. Very cool. I mean, not cool, but <laughs> we keep moving. All right. I don't know where this one is going to go, but it's from freedomandcitizenship.edu. And it's written by Rangun Islam, The Human Meat Market. Ever since colonialization of America, there have been a growing criminal meat market. Human trafficking is one of the most common and largest international crimes that involve various types of abuse and force against humans by transferring people of any age, gender, for the purpose of exploitation or commercial gain. The Department of Homeland Security describes human trafficking as a form of modern-day slavery and involves the use of force, fraud, or coercion to exploit human beings for some type of labor or commercial sex purpose. Human trafficking can happen in mostly every continent, but it occurs more in the third world countries than the developed countries because the people in poverty are more vulnerable to be puppets to the perpetrator. All right, welcome back. I'm only halfway through, <laughs> like, looking through some of these articles, trying to find the best ones to give you guys, and I'm already really grossed out. <laughs> 
So without getting too much into detail, there is scientists are working on an Oberus steak kit that you like. It's like a swab from your cheek that you feed with blood and keep it in an oven and kept fed with blood and it grows a little steak for you. <laughs> Which I think is kind of gross. Um, a lot of places right now are having discussions like in Sweden about, you know, s sustainability and, you know, could human possibly be a source, human meat. And they say they're nowhere close to being actually functional in the human meat market or anything like that. But it's something to spark discussion for sure. Um... Yeah, I think that is wild. So after reading so many of them, I came across something that it's kind of close to what we began with is being accidentally served human meat. So this article comes from Psychology Today, written by Katherine Ramsland, PhD, and it's called Accidental Cannibalism, Why Killers Serve Bodies as Food. Four Reasons Why Some Predators Dupe Others Into Ingesting Human Remains. So, I did a roundup at the end of 2020 that mentioned serial killers who died of COVID. Recently, another one popped into the news. Instead of just adding her to that post, I thought her peculiar case, and others like it, warranted its own discussion. So let's talk about killers who feed human body parts to unwitting recipients. Sophia... Zukova has been arrested for three murders in Russia and was suspected in four more. She was 81 when she died of COVID on December 29th, still awaiting trial. Her neighbors believe she disposed of human flesh from her victims by cooking it into meaty treats. Among her admitted victims were an eight-year-old girl, an elderly female tenant, and a janitor for Zukova's building. Knives and saws in her residence showed traces of blood, and police found body parts in her refrigerator. The press called this former slaughterhouse worker the female Sweeney Todd. Reading about Zukova reminds me of other cases where killers included human remains and food they prepared for others. The glaring question is why? So let's look at the variety of motives I've noticed in these cases. An obvious reason is utilitarian. Cooking and serving the flesh as if it were any other meat can effectively dispose of the body parts when you have no other safe means. In northern Michigan, Kelly Cochran and her husband Jason, who she later killed, seemed to have murdered her former lover and served his cooked flesh to neighbors. She admitted she'd coaxed Chris Reagan to their home where he was shot. Neighbors heard the din of a power saw in the middle of the night. They soon received an invitation to come over for a barbecue, uncharacteristic of this couple. In fact, that week, they were invited over several times. The Cochrans served only cooked meat in various forms. One person who partook thought the burger tasted strange. No one knows where the, whether the meat was human, but the evidence strongly suggests that it was. In cases where killers ran a butcher business, adding human flesh to the menu not only got rid of evidence, but also enriched them. During conditions in Europe between the world wars, several cannibal butchers were at work. 
From 1918 to 1921, Karl Grossman killed more than two dozen women in Berlin and sold their flesh on the black market. In Hanover, Fritz Harman teamed up with the male sex worker to lure young men into a game of terminal sex. After he killed them, Harman would consume pieces of their flesh and sell the rest to customers. Yet such conditions do not explain Joe Metheny's nasty acts in Maryland. Convicted of two murders, he claimed in a confession that he'd killed ten. He also said he cut up two victims and served their flesh as burgers. I lured two more crack whores up there to my trailer, he wrote. I killed and butchered their bodies up. I cut the meat up and put it in some Tupperware bowls, then put it in a freezer. Over the next couple weeks on the weekends, I opened up a little bit, a little open pit beef stand. I had real roast beef and pork sandwiches. Why not? They were very good. The human body tastes very similar to pork. If you mix it together, no one can tell the difference. He stated motives were revenge and the thrill. He thought it was fun to turn unsuspecting customers into cannibals. Nathaniel Barjona, a convicted child predator, might have fed at least one victim to neighbors. In 1979, he told a prison psychiatrist his fantasies of kidnapping children, murdering them, and then consuming their bodies. Still, he was released. After he moved to Montana, but he was arrested. A search of his home found thousands of pictures of boys, as well as a diary that showed his desire to eat his victims. Encrypted writings talking of a little boy stew, little boy pot pie, and lunch served with roasted child. An investigation held Bar Jonah responsible for the 1996 disappearance of Zachary Ramsey, who vanished on his way to school. Evidence suggests that Bar Jonah had cut up the boy's body for stews and hamburgers that he served to unsuspecting neighbors at a cookout. Oh, and with that, I am never eating at a stranger's barbecue. This, this is why we can't have nice things. Because y'all do crazy stuff like this. Alright, I'll keep going. So I've proposed evidence, disposal, enrichment, and thrill as motives for duping others into eating human flesh. Sometimes they're combined, yet a most singular motive in another case involved a delusional belief in supernatural power and protection. Leonardo Cianzuli, an Italian serial killer, Murdered, dismembered, and cooked up three of her friends. But she thought she had a good reason. A palm reader had told her that her children would all precede her in death, and most had. Of 17 pregnancies, by 1939, she was left with only four living children. Then her eldest went off to train for war. She panicked. She knew she'd need extreme measures to keep him alive. A life for a life. That's what she'd learned from her supernatural lore. Tricking women she knew into believing they were going on trips to gain unique opportunities, she got them to cover their own tracks before killing them. After cutting them up in her kitchen, she baked their blood to make flour for tea cakes and boiled their flesh with ingredients she'd used to make soap and candles. She sold and served the tea cakes to visitors, as well as sending some to her son. When this charm seemed to work the first time, he remained alive. She repeated it to strengthen its power. After her third 
murder, she was caught. She confessed, apparently believing that a mother's duty to protect her child trumped any law. About one woman who was overweight, she said the extra fat made the cakes taste sweeter. That's disgusting. The idea that killers might consume their victims is always gruesome. That they might instead serve human flesh to those who know it's unthinkable. But they have multiple ways to justify such acts. And sometimes even enjoy them. That's so messed up. <laughs> Alright. I have on... It's just a little tiny article. Um, it's like one paragraph. But it says, In 1901, human meatballs sold in China. At the turn of the 20th century, parts of rural China were being ravaged by drought, devastating crop failures, and famine. American journalist and Christian missionary Francis Nichols turned toward the Shan province, X-I-A-N, where more than 2 million people had perished and saw evidence of cannibalism, including the sale of human meatballs. By and by, human flesh began to be sold in suburbs of XIAN. Xan. At first, the traffic was carried on clandestinely, but after a time, a horrible kind of meatball, made from the bodies of human beings who had died of hunger, became a staple article of food that was sold for about four American cents a pound. So there's even uh, people who kind of argue for in vitro human meat <laughs> where they grow it and like you know you pay to i don't know eat a piece of a celebrity or consume a part of each other when you get married or <laughs> something like that um still feels very icky <laughs> All right, we go over to Eater.com, where they have an article, Three People on Trial for Eating and Selling Human Flesh Pastries. Three people are now on trial in Brazil for killing at least two women and eating them, according to the Washington Post. A man, his wife, and his mistress, who lived with the couple, were arrested in 2012 for allegedly luring women to their house by promising them nanny positions. After killing their victims, the trio then ate parts of the bodies. They used the rest of the flesh to make thick empanada-like pastries, which the trio and a child who lived with them ate. They also sold many pastries to neighbors. Last month, an, Amer an Australian chef was also caught engaging in cannibalistic acts. The 27-year-old killed his girlfriend, dismembered her, and cooked parts of her body before running from the police and taking his own life. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. 
And of course, I know I can't have an article or an episode on cannibalism without mentioning the Wendigo um, and Wendigo psychosis. So let's go into a little bit of the lore. I won't go into detailed since I already have an episode on Wendigos, but I will do my best and then we'll talk about it. All right, I'm on legendsofamerica.com, the legend of the Wendigo, flesh eater of the forest. The Wendigo was gaunt to the point of emaciation. Its desiccated skin pulled tautly over its bones. With its bones pushing out against its skin, its complexion the ash gray of death, and its eyes pushed back deep in their sockets, the Wendigo looked like a gaunt skeleton recently disinterred from the grave. What lips it had were tattered and bloody. Its body was unclean and suffering from separations of the flesh, giving off a strange and eerie odor of decay, decomposition, and death and corruption. That was from Basil Johnston, Ojibwe teacher and scholar, Ontario, Canada. In Minnesota's north woods, the forests of the Great Lake region and central regions of Canada are said to live a malevolent, a malevolent being named Wendigo. This creature may appear as a monster with some human characteristics or as a spirit who has possessed a human being and made them monstrous. It's historically been associated with cannibalism, murder, insatiable greed, and cultural taboos against such behaviors. Known by several names, the Wendigo, the Wittigo, the Wittigo, the Wittigo, each roughly translates to the evil spirit that devours mankind. This creature has long been known among the Algonquin, Ojibwe, Eastern Cree, Salto, West Main Swampy Cree, Naskapi, and Innu peoples. They have described them as giants, many times larger than human beings. Although descriptions can somewhat vary, common to all these cultures is the view that the Wendigo is a malevolent, cannibalistic, supernatural being strongly associated with winter, the north, coldness, famine, and starvation. The Algonquin legend describes the creature as a giant with a heart of ice, sometimes. It is thought to be entirely made of ice. Its body is skeletal and deformed, with missing lips and toes. The Ojibwa describes it. It was a large creature, as tall as a tree, with a lipless mouth and jagged teeth. Its breath was a strange hiss, its footprints full of blood, and it ate any man, woman, or child who ventured into its territory. And those were the lucky ones. Sometimes the Wendigo chose to possess a person instead. Then the luckless individual became a Wendigo himself, hunting down those he once loved and feasting upon their flesh. According to the legends, a Wendigo is created when a human resorts to cannibalism to survive. In the past, this occurred more often when Indians and settlers found themselves stranded in the bitter snows and ice of the North Woods. Sometimes stranded for days, survivors might have felt compelled to cannibalize the dead to survive. Other versions of this legend cite that a Wendigo might also possess humans who displayed extreme greed, gluttony, and excess. 
Thus, the myth served as a method of encouraging cooperation and moderation. Native American versions of the creature spoke of a gigantic spirit over 15 feet tall that had once been human, but had been transformed into a creature by magic. Though the descriptions of the creature vary slightly, the Wendigo is generally said to have glowing eyes, long yellowed fangs, terrible claws, and overly long tongues. Sometimes they are described as having a sallow, yellowish skin, and other times they are covered with matted hair. The creature is said to have several skills and powers, including stealth, is near perfect hunter, knows and uses every inch of its territory, and can control the weather through dark magic. They are also portrayed as simultaneously gluttonous and emaciated from starvation. Wendigos are said to be cursed to wander the land, eternally seeking to fulfill their voracious appetite for human flesh, and if there's nothing left to eat, it starves to death. So, this legend lends its name to the disputed modern medical term, Wendigo psychosis. Some psychiatrists consider it a syndrome that creates an intense craving for human flesh, or a fear of becoming a cannibal. Ironically, this psychosis occurs in people living around the Great Lakes of Canada and the United States. Wendigo psychosis usually develops in the winter in individuals isolated by heavy snows for long periods. The initial symptoms are poor appetite, nausea, and vomiting. Subsequently, the individual develops a delusion of being transformed into a Wendigo monster. People who have Wendigo psychosis increasingly see others around them as being edible. At the same time, they have an exaggerated fear of becoming cannibals. The most common response when a person showed sign of Wendigo psychosis was a curing attempt by traditional native healers. In past cases, if these attempts failed and the possessed person began to threaten those around them or to act violently or antisocially, they were executed. There have been reports regarding this psychosis dating back hundreds of years. A 1960 or a 1661 Jesuit relations document stated, What caused us greater concern was the intelligence that met us upon entering the lake, namely the men disputed by our conductor to summon the nations to the North Sea and assigning them a rendezvous where they were to await our coming had met their death the previous winter in a very strange manner. Those poor men, according to the report given to us, were seized with an ailment unknown to us, but not very unusual among the people we were seeking. They are afflicted with neither lunacy, hypochondria, nor frenzy, but a combination of all of these species of diseases, which affects their imaginations and causes them a more than canine hunger. This makes them so ravenous for human flesh that they pounce upon women, children, even upon men, like veritable werewolves, and devour them voraciously without being able to appease their glut, their appetite. Ever seeking fresh prey and more greedily, the more they eat, this ailment attacked our deputies, and as death is the sole remedy among those simple people for checking such acts of murder, they were slain in order to stay the course of their madness. Another document case occurred in 1878 when a Plains Cree trapper from Alberta named Swift Runner 
suffered one of the worst cases. Swift Runner was a trader with the Hudson Bay Company, who was married and a father of six children. In 1875, he served as a guide for the Northwest Mounted Police. During the winter of 1878-79, Swift Runner and his family were starving, along with numerous other Cree families. His eldest son was the first to die of starvation, and at some point, Swift Runner succumbed to Wendigo psychosis. Though emergency food supplies were available at Hudson Bay Company's post some 25 miles away, he did not attempt to travel there. Instead, he killed the remaining members of his family and consumed them. He eventually confessed and was executed by authorities at Fort Saskatchewan. A Wendigo allegedly made several appearances near Rosu in northern Minnesota from late 1800s through the 1920s. Each time it was reported, an unexpected death followed, and finally, it was seen no more. Another well-known case involving Wendigo psychosis was that of Jack Fiddler, an OG Cree chief and medicine man known for his power at defeating Wendigos. Fiddler claimed to have defeated 14 Wendigos during his lifetime. Some of these creatures were said to have been sent by enemy shamans, and others were members of his band, have been taken with insatiable and curable desire to eat human flesh. In the latter case, family members usually asked Fiddler to kill a very sick loved one before they turned Wendigo. Fiddler's brother, Peter Flett, was killed after turning Wendigo when food ran out on a trading expedition. Hudson Bay Company's traders, the Cree, and missionaries knew the Wendigo legend, though they often explained it as mental illness or superstition. Regardless, several incidents of people turning Wendigo and eating human flesh are documented in the company's history. In 1907, the Canadian authorities arrested Fiddler and his brother Joseph for murder. Jack committed suicide, but Joseph was tried and sentenced to life in prison. He ultimately was granted a pardon, but died three days later in jail, before receiving the news of his pardon. Among the Assiniboine the Cree and the Ojibwe, a satirical ceremony dance is sometimes performed during famine to reinforce the seriousness of the Wendigo taboo. The frequency of Wendigo psychosis cases decreased sharply in the 20th century as the Native Americans came in greater and greater contact with Western ideologies. However, Wendigo creature sightings are still reported especially in northern Ontario, near the cave of the Wendigo. Around Kenora, where traders have allegedly spotted it, trekkers and trappers for decades. Many still believe the Wendigo roams the woods and prairies of northern Minnesota and Canada. Many have given Kenora, Ontario, Canada, the title of Wendigo Capital of the World. Sightings of the creature in this area have continued well into the new millennium. So... I think the Wendigo is a good example of cannibalism because it's a documented thing, Wendigo psychosis. And I've always believed that consuming human flesh, like there's a spiritual side to it. There's like a spiritual consequence, I guess it would be. Not that you're gaining their strength or gaining their essence or anything like that. Cause I think there's several people out there that believe that that happens maybe it does but as far as i know i think 
I think there's just a line that you cross whenever you eat humans that, yeah, I think it's, it's just one of those lines that we're not supposed to cross. But with that being said, I like the story of Wendigo Madness because it's like, you know, in our Western ideologies and everything, we don't really acknowledge or give much credence to spooky things, supernatural things. And then here it is in one of the, you know, Western world, you know, United States and Canada, and it's a known legend and it's a known thing that happens is Wendigo madness, Wendigo psychosis. It's very cool. Very cool. It's like almost a little bit substantiated. Uh, some of the supernatural stuff that they're talking about. So, Epoch Magazine. They have an article by Abby Real, The Bread of Life, Exploring Ritualistic Cannibalism. To many, cannibalism is more than just a scary story to tell in the dark, or the worst-case scenario of being stranded in the woods. The cannibal is the dangerous other, a justification of the brutal persecution of many an inconvenient population over the course of history, be they Jews, Aztecs, pagans, or even Christians. Though Christians were typically the ones carrying out the persecutions, it is not difficult to understand why the Romans would think the early Christians to be practicers of ritualistic cannibalism. After all, it fit the bill, secret gatherings to partake in the flesh and blood of the one who sacrificed himself to save others. It sounds suspicious, the kind of behavior that only a dangerous group of people would engage in. If they ate one of their own, Logic asked, what was to stop them from eating one of ours? I never thought of it that way. Hmm. But that was an often deliberate misunderstanding of the communion. The Eucharist was not cannibalism. It had nothing to do with it whatsoever, despite the startling similarities it shares with other flesh-eating rituals from cultures around the globe. Warrior peoples like the Iroquois and the Fijans ate the flesh of their defeated enemies in order to absorb their power. Of course, we've talked about the four people of Papua New Guinea eating the hearts and brains of their deceased elders to honor them, to ensure they remained a part of the community and to pass on their knowledge to the younger generation. Christians consumed the body and blood of Christ to gain salvation and eternal life and called it communion. And yet beyond that brief period of history during which the Romans believed that Christians to be man-eating monsters, the Eucharist never faced the same persecution that the other rituals suffered. It is not the literal eating of human flesh, one may argue, but of the wafer and wine, and they would be correct, were they Protestant. Protestantism did not arrive on the scene, however, until 1517. Prior to that, indeed after the majority of European was Catholic, the Catholics held a firm belief in transubstantiation. That is the literal presence of Christ in the Eucharist. In other words, when one consumes the wafer, they are literally consuming the body of literal Christ. They are eating human flesh. What then makes the Eucharist different from other cannibalistic rituals? Whew. 
Historically, Europeans were unwilling to entertain the notion that the Eucharist could have been anything in common with the barbaric practices of uncivilized people of Africa and the New World. This is a perception steeped in long-held colonial beliefs and a sense of so-called European superiority. However, the refusal to associate the Eucharist and non-Christian practices persisted for a surprisingly long time in modern hist historiography. Indeed, it was not until the late 1970s that scholars began to toy with the idea of comparing the ideologies of the Eucharist to the famed indigenous practices of man-eating savages of the New World. All right, so we hop over to an article at sapiens.org by Ben Thomas called Eating People is Wrong, but it's also widespread and sacred. Can transcendence be attained by embracing the strongest taboo of all? All right, let's get into it. It shows a picture... And the 15th century depiction of cannibalistic practices was inspired by Marco Polo's writings about traveling through Asia. Cannibalism is not uncommon. Humans have long enshrined the consumption of human flesh in sacred ritual, not just a few times, but again and again in almost every corner of the globe. Evidence for cannibalistic practices have been found in South America, on many Pacific islands, among some ancient Native American tribes, and in many other regions of the world. Nor is cannibalism a distant historical fact. In the 1980s, Med Medicines Sans Frontieres, the international medical charity, documented ritualized cannibal feasts among soldiers in Liberia. Since then, the ritual has become more common. By the early 2000s, sacred cannibalism was a common practice in this near-anarchic country where violence, rape, and drug use are widespread. Cannibalism has also been documented in the Congo, in Sierra Leone, and Uganda, where it was infamously practiced among the child soldiers of the Joseph Kony's army. In such war-torn areas, part participants in ritual cannibalism are often happy to make their motivations clear. They draw spiritual and physical power from the consumption of human flesh. The practice serves an obvious propagandist value as well, striking fear into the hearts of enemies. And in child armies, cannibalism is an initiation ritual, an ordeal that transforms a boy into a man, makes him feel sanctified, empowered, and safe under the hails of bullets. Cannibalism has no single ubiquitous meaning, Rather, it is adapted to suit the spiritual framework of each culture in which it's practiced. For ancient Egyptian pharaohs, it guaranteed an eternal afterlife. For Druids, it might have been connected with agriculture and fertility. For other, cannibalism has served as a tool of empowerment and intimidation, and as a way to honor the beloved dead. But most of all, cannibalism deals in taboo. We often think of taboo in terms of prescribed action. It's taboo to marry your brother, or in certain cultures to eat pork. But in a much deeper sense, the word taboo denotes the very points where the sacred and profane converge. Sexual intercourse, the taking of life, and childbirth. Many cultures regard these acts as unclean, yet at the same time as profoundly holy. 
In fact, anthropologists often define taboo as an act deemed too sacred to perform under ordinary circumstances, an act that invites the greatest peril while invoking the most tremendous power. Cannibalism is one of the strongest taboos of all, and that might be the very reason why it's been considered one of the most holy rituals around the world, and far back into the depths of prehistory. Cannibalism, or anthropophagy, literally man-eating, as most modern anthropologists prefer to term it, was practiced long before the anatomically modern Homo sapiens. In cave dwelling of Homo antecessor, the common ancestor of modern humans and Neanderthals, anthropologists have discovered defleshed human bones dating back to 600,000 years. The earliest Homo sapien bones found in Ethiopia also show signs of defleshing by other humans. This far back in prehistory is hard to say exactly why our distant ancestors ate one another. Some anthropologists argue that food shortages must have been a factor, along with the facts that the corpse left to rot would attract man-eating predators such as leopards and lions. And yet, by the Upper Paleolithic period, it's clear that cannibalism served a deeper purpose. Humans remains found in Goh's Cave in England, dating to about 15,000 BC, show evidence of cannibalism. Many of the skulls appear to have been used as drinking vessels, indicating that the devouring of human dead served a ritual purpose for the people who visited this cave. This was not mere cannibalism for survival. It was cannibalism as a sacred practice. Ritualized cannibalism not only survived well into the historical times, but was also enshrined in some of the earliest literal cultures, particularly ancient Egypt. In 1881, a French archaeologist, Gaston Maspero, broke into a tomb in the vast European burial ground of Saqqara, outside of Cairo. At the end of the long underway, underground causeway, he found a gallery of brightly painted reliefs, harvest scenes, and temple ceremonies, battles with enemies. There were also ritual inscriptions. These turned out to belong to a sect of spells known as the Pyramid Texts a large and varied corpus of Egyptian magical literature that appears fully formed in some of the earliest tombs, hinting that these spells and rituals must date back to the time before the writing. Perhaps the strangest of the pyramid texts are those that concern cannibalism, not only of other humans, but of gods. Pharaoh is he who lives on being of every god, who eats their entrails, Pharaoh is he who eats men and lives on gods. This cannibal hymn was the enshrined tradition of an ancient and highly ritualized culture whose roots reached far back into the midst of prehistory to a time before writing or cities, when the warlords of the Nile Delta feasted on the flesh of their conquered enemies and called it holy. The Greek writer Diodorus Siculus writing thousands of years later in the first century BC, recorded an ancient story in which Osiris forbade Egyptian people to eat one another. This story was still recited in the Roman period, a reminder of a time that when the human flesh eating had been a sacred practice. In fact, sacred cannibalism persisted or reappeared in the West all the way up to Roman times. 
Certain Druid clans seem to have practiced human sacrifice and cannibalism in the early centuries, and many Greek and Roman writers make references to tribes with cannibal practices. St. Jerome mentions a cannibal people who called themselves the Atacati. Herodotus refers to a tribe he simply called the Maneaters. In one striking story, Herodotus relates an episode in which the Persian emperor Darius, ruler of a domain that stretches from modern Turkey to Afghanistan, decides to try an experiment in cultural relativism. The emperor summons a group of Greeks and a group of Calatians, the Indic people, to his court. He asked the Calatians what it would take for them to burn the bodies of their dead fathers, as the Greeks do. The Calatians gasp in horror and insist they'd never do such a dreadful thing. Darius then asked the Greeks what it would take for them to devour the bodies of their dead fathers, as the Calatians do, and the Greeks in turn gag with revulsion. Though the two cultures hold polar opposite views on what should be done with dead bodies of relatives, they agree on one crucial point. Ancestors' corpses are taboo, simultaneously unclean and holy, because they bridge the worlds of the living and the dead. In fact, some monks and ascetics practice cannibalism with the aim of transcending precisely this boundary. Take, for example, the Algoris, a sect of Hindu ascetics in India. A core principle of the Algori doctrine is that all things in the universe are equally sacred, including human remains. By holding and caressing dead bodies, a practice regarded as highly taboo in mainstream Hinduism, and eating human flesh, the Agoris aim to transcend all dichotomies, see through the illusionary nature of all human categories, and attain nirvana by being one with the ultimate reality. Perhaps the clearest insight of all comes from certain Tibetan monks who, as recently as the 1500s, ritually consumed pills of flesh collected from the Brahm, Brahmin ascetics and left extensive written documentation of the theory behind his practice. The theory turns out to be extraordinarily multi-layered and complex, but it boils down to the idea that these flesh pills bridge the boundary between subject and object, serving as ritual tokens that embody the compassion of the past Buddhas while also reminding the eater of the transient nature of his own mortal flesh. How far back in human history does this concept of cannibalism for transcendence reach? We might never know for sure, but at some point in our evolution, cannibalism clearly ceased to be a simple act of survival or dominance and became a true taboo, a point of convergence between sacred and the profane. A dead body our ancestors recognized had once contained a mind, a consciousness whose departure somehow transmuted the body from a sentient person into an in inanimate object. This realization could not fail to make a profound impression on the Paleolithic inhabitants of England, on the ancestors of pharaohs, on Greeks, Druids, Algoris, or Algoris and Tibetan monks, and on hundreds of other societies around the world throughout every era of our past and present. Across all the cultures, justifications for man-eating, one central idea resonates. We eat the dead because we hope never to become as they are. Alright, very cool article.
All right. Let's hop over to yamunarodvenir.medium.com where this person has is talking about at Atasaya, the Zuni cannibal demon. The Zuni people of southwestern United States maintain an intricate catalog of mythological stories and folktales. Among the many creatures and beings that are mentioned within the tales of the Zuni people, there is one that stands out as one of the most terrible. This entity is called Atahasya, and he is explained as a spiritual entity or a demon who appears as a giant. This particular demon is often mentioned in relation to cannibalism. Some texts refer to this being as an ogre rather than a demon, which may be due to the way he appears when he manifests to interact with the world. He is described as being a great deal larger than any mortal man when he is in his physical form. Atahasya is called the cannibal demon, and from this title comes much of his reputation. Calling him a cannibal may, on the surface, imply that he feeds on the flesh of other demons. While this behavior would fit into the idea of social taboo among the Zuni people, it isn't likely that a demon who kills other demons would strike fear in the hearts of young people who hear this tale. In the case of Adahazia, when he is called a cannibal demon, it means that his diet is based on meat taken from humans. He has also been known to try and trick people into eating other humans, particularly their family or children, that he has hunted. This sort of activity is what has earned him the title of cannibal. One such tale of his attempts to compel people to eat each other took place when two young maidens came upon him one day. The girls were either fairly unobservant or were tricked by Adahasya into believing that he was their grandfather. Adahasya is known as being hideous among the ugliest demons described in Zuni lore, and even so, he is not ugly enough for them to tell the difference between him and their grandfather. The demon offered the girls a stew that he made from the flesh of human children. After a bit of discussion, the girls trick the demon and get away without eating the human stew. More often, he appears in stories to try and trick people into eating his dinner, rather than tricking people into sharing his unpalatable meals with him, or to be his dinner, instead of joining him for a meal. This cannibal demon is described as extremely unsightly. Among the most distinguishing features attributed to Adahasya is his massive size. He is to be as huge as a great elk. His barrel of a chest covered in coarse hair, almost like the quills of a porcupine. His wide face is fitted with a mouth which stretches from ear to ear and is set up in yellowed fangs that resemble old decaying bones. His thick and muscular limbs are covered in a layer of scales, like those of a snake, which are as black as night, with speckled with white. He is often depicted as carrying a crude but intimidating weapons and wearing the skins of mountain lions and bears. When the Zuni people perform the stories of Adahasya, they, they don black and white speckled masks to represent his scales. Adahasya is said to live in a cave somewhere, where he often comes across people who are out hunting, fishing, washing their clothes, or going for a stroll. Despite his repulsive appearance and eating habits, he is generally considered a fairly polite demon. 
He will often stop to talk to people and will be on his way if he is asked to leave. Unlike many demons in folklore, he is rarely outright malicious, aside from his dietary needs and his hunting habits, which coincide with such a diet. Many of his stories are rather light-hearted and humorous, which relying the mor moral of caution, mindfulness, and adherence to social rules. In much the same way as other demons found among Native American stories, Adahasia represents the dangers of disregarding important social structures and ethical considerations. He describes what can become of someone who eats the flesh of other people, similar to stories of the warnings presented by the tales of the Wendigo from the tribes further north. The stories of this demon serve to warn children to distrust strange things that they encounter in the wild and to question the motives of strangers, to be kind to their kin, and to never wander among caves alone. All right, very cool. We go now to Ranker, where they have 11 cannibals from mythology around the world by Leah Rose Emery. All right. Atreus and Phaestus, who ate their own kind at a feast. The mythological brothers Atreus and Thyestus of Greek lore grew up to have an intense rivalry over many things, including various thrones, and the wife of Atreus, Arup, after discovering that his brother Thystus usurped the throne of Mycenae and had an affair with his wife Arup, Atreus decided to get the ultimate revenge on Thystus. Atria invited Thystus and his son to dinner. Then, without his brother knowing, Atreus had Thystus' son slain and served their flesh as part of the banquet. This is how the phrase Thystan banquet or feast came to be. Kakao Kumu, male witches who are consumed as their punishment. The Kombai people of Papua New Guinea have a myth about the Kakao Kumu, sometimes called the Sengai, but it's a myth with some very real-world consequences. Kakao Kumu is the name given to men who practice witchcraft. It is believed that they consume both the body and soul of their targets. Because the Kakakumu are both the stuff of legend and believed to exist in the real world, if a person is able to name the Kakakumu that went after them, then the person's family must slay and consume certain organs of the accused Kakakumu in order to free the deceased spirit. The Kombai believe that the soul lives in the brain and the stomach of a person. As such, these organs of the alleged Kakakumu are consumed so that the witch is wiped out. This modern-day cannibalism still exists as living Kumbai tribe members attest to having eaten Kakakumu. Number 3. Baba Yaga, who decorates with the bones of her targets. Commonly depicted as either an ugly old woman or a trio of sisters, Baba Yaga is a cannibal from Slavic folklore, a shapeshifter normally in the guise of a wicked old woman who travels by flying around in an iron kettle or a mortar using a pestle to steer. It's believed she lives in the woods in a hut made of chicken legs, surrounded by a fence made of human bones of her targets. Legend has it that she nabs, cooks, and eats those who fail to complete her tasks and riddles, oftentimes children. Number four, Erisigathon, who got so hungry he ate himself. Erisigathon, Erisigathon is a unique sort of cannibal famous for devouring the most shocking of target, himself. In Greek mythology, he also sometimes called Athon, cut down in 
cut down trees in a sacred forest belonging to the goddess Demeter in order to build himself a feast hall. As punishment, Demeter placed the spirit of an insatiable hunger, Limos, in his stomach, which meant that he, the more he ate, the hungrier he got. Driven by intense hunger, he sold all of his possessions, including his own daughter, to acquire food. Eventually, poor, homeless, and driven mad by his hunger, he began to gnaw on his own limbs and ended up eating himself. Number six, Muma Paduri, who likes some little girl soup. A sort of Hansel and Gretel character from Romanian myth, Muma Paduri is the kind of cannibal that can cause little children to never want to leave their homes again. Although her name means mother of the forest, there's nothing maternal about her thirst for little children. Able to shift shapes, she can appear in different forms, but her true embodiment is that of an ugly old woman, depicted as taking and imprisoning children. In some versions of the myth, she attempts to boil a little girl alive and make a soup out of her. Similar to the story of Hansel and Gretel, the children manage to outsmart her and escape. Number 7. Tantalus, who tried to feed his son to his dad. In Greek mythology, Zeus's son Tantalus angered the gods when he took ambrosia and nectar from their sacred table. After being chastised, he decided to get the gods back by slaying his son Pelops and feeding him to them as a test of their omnipotence. Given their legitimate all-knowingness, the gods didn't eat any of Pelops, except for Demeter, who was distracted and took a tiny bite. After the near-cannibalistic consumption of his grandson, Zeus ordered that Pelops be brought back to life, and the tiny piece of shoulder that Demeter ate was replaced with solid ivory. Zeus punished Tantalus by exiling him from Olympus, and to eternal unhappiness after his demise. Rakshasas, one part vampire, one part cannibal. According to Hindu and Buddhist myth, Rakshasas are cannibalistic beings, who tried to eat their own creator. Legends has it that they were created from the breath of the sleeping Hindu creator god Brahma, but were so bloodthirsty from the moment they were created, they attempted to eat him immediately. However, before they were able, he had Vishnu banish them to earth. In the ancient Rig Veda text, they are known as one of the Yatudhanas, translated to mean that eat raw flesh. In Vedic and Puranic stories, they are described as vampiric, and the ability to fly and disappear with fangs, and with lust for human blood, which they drink straight from their palms, or from the human skull. Their red eyes and flaming hair give them a fearsome appearance. Their appetites made them so infamous that in Bengali, the word rakosh signals a person who eats excessively and feels no need to stop. Number 9. Kronos, who ate and regurgitated his own children. Kronos, the god of time in ancient Greek mythology, was the father of the Olympians, Hestia, Demeter, Hera, Hades, Poseidon, and Zeus. Fearing that his children would ruin him like they did, like he did his father, he decided to devour them as soon as they were born. By the time Zeus, the youngest, finally arrived, the children's mother Rhea was fed up and fed her husband a stone instead. Her trick was successful. Zeus grew up and later convinced his father to regurgitate the other children back to life. Greek mythology has served as an inspiration for many artists, such as the Spanish painter Francisco de Goya, 
who created the painting of Satum, titled Saturn Devouring His Son. Number 10, Watiri, who desperately wanted to start a cannibal family. According to Mori mythology, Watiri was a cannibal thunder goddess who wanted to start a cannibal family for herself. Her story began when she descended from the sky to marry a mortal warrior chief called Mankiller, because she thought he sounded like the perfect mate. But after marrying him, she was disappointed to learn that he was not a cannibal. Even when he slew her favorite enslaved person and offered Mankiller the person's heart and liver, he wasn't interested. She eventually gave up on trying to make him a cannibal like herself and returned to the sky. Number 11. Brahmar Kashasas, the cannibalistic spirits of deceased scholars. They're described as hulking demon spirits that are originated from evil deeds. They are a karmic consequence of ill-lived life. Based in Hindu myth, they are spirits of Brahmins, or scholars of high birth, who did evil things in their lives and did not fulfill their duties. The resulting monster-ghost-hybrid human possesses all the knowledge of its human life as well as a certain seductive power, but it also wants to eat people. The concept of Brahmakar... Shasas is so prevalent in Hindu-based cultures that the famous Indian filmmaker Bhushan Kumar created a supernatural film by the same name based upon them. Alright, we go now to the New York Post where they have an article by Maureen Callahan, Man Who Ate Five People, Demonic or Desperate? He was the perpetrator of one of the most gruesome crimes of the 19th century, vilified as the human hyena. Yet, Alfred G. Packer, accused of dismembering and eating his travel companions while stranded in the Rocky Mountains, was later exonerated by the press and buried as a war hero. What actually occurred in those woods is the heart of a new investigation, Maneater, by true crime journalist and American literature professor Harold Schechter. Schechter relies on primary research and recent examinations of the exhumed bodies of Packer's five victims to answer the questions that have lingered for over a century. Was Packer truly a monster or merely a victim of his circumstances? Six left, one came back. Much of Packer's early life remains a mystery, mostly because Packer was an unreliable narrator. Packer fought for the Confederacy during the Civil War until he was discharged due to epilepsy. He headed west, taking on jobs of varied as saddlemaker, trapper, teamster, hunter, and wilderness guide, until jumping onto the silver prospecting bandwagon in San Juan Mountains in Colorado. In February 1873, Packer was hired as a guide for a group of 21 out of Provo, Utah. Immediately, though, the others realized that Packer was not who he said he was. He in quotes, did not know the way and was lying when he said he could guide, one of the prospectors later recounted. He was greedy with the meager food rations and often inquired about the amount of money the other men were carrying on them. To top it all off, he was often incapacitated by violent seizures. Knowing that they hated him so, Packer stayed apart from the balance of the men, nursing a cordial hatred. During their brutal first leg of the trek, they, sound, they nearly resorted to eating their horses until they arrived at a cow camp near 
Montrose, Colorado. The group was warned not to move on in deep snow. Only six, including Packer, decided to press on. Two months later, Packer was discovered by a man gathering firewood in the woods. The first impression was that he looked none the worse. When asked where his travel companions were, he responded that he didn't know. When a member of his prospecting team who stayed behind saw Packer, he noted that a skinning knife he was carrying belonged to one of the lost men. Packer said the man had stuck it in a tree and then walked off. This arose suspicions, which grew into accusations once Packer returned to a nearby town. There he spent money wildly, gambling and drinking, dropping $100 at the saloon, about $2,000 today. It didn't take long for the local authorities to arrest him on suspicion of murder and for a rescue party to start searching for the missing men. Packer confessed, telling authorities that the team was crazed with starvation, eating roots from the ground. When the oldest in the group died, all of them feasted on his body, and when another man died, they ate him too. One of the men, Shannon Wilson Bell, plotted to kill the remaining men. When Bell tried to attack, Packer shot him. Packer pled self-defense and self-preservation. It wouldn't be the first time that people had been obliged to eat others when they were hungry. His only crime? He stole money from the dead. By August, the corpses were found and Packer's story didn't add up. The bodies, one article at the time read, were all more or less mutilated. The head of one had been severed from the body. The head of another was badly crushed, while the flesh had been cut in huge masses from the breast, thighs, and fleshy parts of the legs of all. None of them had been shot. Before they could move forward with a trial, however, Packer escaped. The man-eater, the papers warned, was now on the loose. A forgivable crime? Cannibalism may be reviled, but it isn't uncommon in human history. In Egyptian mythology, the god Osiris gave gifts to humans to stop them from eating each other. Cannibalism is also mentioned repeatedly in the Old Testament. Moses is warned that if the Israelites denied God, they would be cannibalized their own children. The ultimate evil. The word entered the English language when Columbus came to the New World and encountered a tribe called the Caribs, who were known to eat their captives. This became cannibals in Spanish. But what is more shocking than the act itself is our history of leniency, even sympathy, in cases of cannibalism in America. Right? Stranded at sea, um, I think this is talking about the Essex, on which Moby Dick is based. Stranded at sea, 20 crewmen resorted to eating 17-year-old boy, the cousin of the Essex's captain, George Pol Pollard. When Pollard was rescued, the townspeople absolved him of blame, cannibalism having been long accepted as a custom of the sea. For the most part, Shetler writes, this who, those who had endured such ordeals could count on the sympathy of a forgiving public. Even on those rare occasions when survivors were brought before the law, they tended to be treated with a lot of leniency. Dead, dead, dead. Packer escaped justice for nine years before being spotted in Utah and close to Colorado. There, he made a second confession, changing his story to fit the murder scene, insisting that Bell had murdered all four of the others with a hatchet. 
He maintained that he only shot Bell in self-defense, but added that he hit him over the head with a hatchet to finish him off, a detail missing from his first confession. Again, he admitted to eating human flesh, but only out of extreme hunger. The papers went wild. Human jerked beef, one headline read. The cannibal who gnaws on choice cuts of his fellow man, another read. He was an overnight celebrity. People collected his photograph and lined up a prison buying watch fobs he crafted from his cell out of horse hair. Armed with the physical descriptions of his crime, the prosecutors went to town. Packer focused on filleting muscle tissue for immediate consumption, which were the arms, legs, ribcage, shoulder, and buttocks, and roasted them. Unlike the Essex, where people resorted to eating every edible human part, from the brains to the bone marrow, Parker was so abundantly supplied with bodies that there was no need for him to report such appetizing fare. The verdict came back swiftly, guilty. The sentence, be hung by the neck until you are dead, 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 and may God have mercy on your soul. But a small but vocal group protested the sentence. It was unfair, they said because the trial was conducted where the notorious crimes were committed, and that Packer was insane when the crimes were committed because of the extreme hunger and his epilepsy. Packer was granted a second trial in Gunnison County, County, Colorado, in 1886. This time, experts damningly revealed that the terrain boasted deer, antelope, rabbits, and grouse in abundance that winter. There were even bones of deer uncovered near the camp undercutting his claim that they had only a small ration of food available. It took only two hours for the jury to render another guilty verdict, naming the sole motive as robbery, discounting the claim that he had been crazed with starvation. His sentence? 40 years. One person disagreed, noisily. Polly Pry, a reporter for the Denver Evening Post, took on Packer's case after visiting his jail cell and hearing his story. She published a series of pieces extolling his virtues as a soldier and attacking his conviction. She described Packer as a dauntless embodiment of American manhood, soldier, scout, and wilderness guide who did not know how to fear and had a constitution of iron. I believe this man is innocent, she wrote. I believe that he is mostly unjustly, most terribly punished for the frightful misfortune and not for a crime. Thanks to Pry's writerly flourishes, the government, was, the governor was besieged with petitioners urging him to issue a pardon. In 1901, after 17 years behind bars, just shy of his 60th birthday, Packer was finally granted parole. He would refer to Pry as his liberator. Once released, Packer, the man who ate men, was thoroughly disgusted by the modern world around him. He was stimmied by the shocking immodesty of what played in the theater. He moved to a small town and lived for six more years before passing away from natural causes. He was buried with full army funeral rites. But his story would not remain buried. James Starr's professor of law at George Washington University reopened the case in 1989, exhuming the remains of five men and analyzing the corpses with FBI forensic research techniques. Stars revealed that all four recovered skulls, including Bell's, bore the marks of related blunt force trauma by only one assailant. 
deep gnashes on the arm bones were classic defensive wounds. One person killed the men, and that person could only be Packer. Packer was as guilty as sin, and his sins were all mortal ones, Stars said. It is plain as Pikestaff that Packer was the one on the attack, not Bell. Then in 1999, David Bailey, curator of the History of Museum of Western Colorado, opened up his own investigation after recovering the long-lost Colt revolver found at the campsite that Packer claimed he shot Bell with. Bailey analyzed the victim's clothes, matched gunshot residue with Bell's clothing to the Colt. Close-up photo photography also revealed a puncture in Bell's hip, suggesting that he had been shot, as Packer had claimed. With this new evidence, Bailey proclaimed definitive proof of Packer's innocence. After examining the evidence, Shetler sides with the guilty. It's just too implausible, he writes, that Packer conveniently found himself with a two-month supply of nourishment, thanks to the fortuitous mental breakdown of Shannon Wilson Bell. When I picture the slay slayer of Shannon Bell and others, I see a man reduced to unimaginable hardship, to the state of feral savagery. A crazed, near-skeletal figure with a wild beard, long matted hair, and a hatchet in hand, and a horribly gaunt but still recognizable face of Alfred Packer. Alright. Very cool. Alright. In our final segment of tonight's episode, I basically covering some famous stories and things about some notorious cannibals because as we have learned a lot of times in our spooky world humans tend to be the most spooky <laughs> the most depraved and the most uh yeah pushing the boundaries so with that being said let's jump into our first article um, we are going to start with 17 famous attacks, cannibal attacks, that will send shivers down your spine by all that's interesting. This is by Katie Serena. Cannibalism is crazy enough as it is, but throughout history and the world, there have been some cannibal attacks that are crazier than you would ever imagine. Number one. Isai Sagawa. One of the most famous cannibals, if one should call them famous, is Isai Sagawa. In 1981, Sagawa invited one of his Paris classmates over for a study session. When she arrived, he murdered and cannibalized her over the course of two days. Thanks to poor relations between his homeland of Japan and France, where he'd been studying, Sagawa was released from prison upon his deportation, and lives today as a free man. Vince Lee Tim McLean was riding on a Greyhound bus in 2008, minding his own business when he was stabbed, beheaded, and cannibalized in full view of the other passengers. The man behind the crime, Vince Lee, was found not criminally responsible for the gruesome and highly public crime, and was rewarded a mental health facility or remanded to a mental health facility. He was released in 2017. Armin Maywis. Armin Maywis placed an ad online in a cannibal chat room requesting someone willing to be eaten. Shockingly, he received a reply from a man named Bernard Brandis, 
In 2001, the pair met up, and Bernard willingly submitted to Maywis's request. After killing him in his bathtub, Armin Maywis spent 10 months consuming 44 pounds of Bernard before he was arrested. Since beginning his life sentence, he has converted to vegetarianism. Nikolai Zumagalev. He was a creative cannibal. After a childhood accident left him with a set of white metal dentures, he earned the nickname Metal Fang. Then he put those fangs to use when he murdered and cannibalized one of his dinner guests, while the rest of them were enjoying cocktails in the next room. Rudy Eugene In 2016, a Miami man made headlines when he stripped naked in broad daylight and viciously attacked a homeless man. Police shot 31-year-old Rudy Eugene after he refused to stop gnawing on the face of a 65-year-old man in the middle of a busy highway. According to witnesses, all that was left of the victim's face after police intervened was his beard. Catherine Knight In 2000, housewife Catherine Knight stabbed her husband John. Then she hung his body from a hook in their living room, skinned him, decapitated him, and cooked parts of his body in a dish with potato, pumpkins, beets, zucchini, and cabbage. Then she put out two servings of John for his children when they got home. Thankfully, police arrived before they consumed their father, though his head was found still stewing in a pot of vegetables on the stove. She became the first woman to be sentenced to life in prison in Australia. Michael Rockefeller In 1961, the youngest son of former Vice President Nelson Rockefeller, Michael Rockefeller, went missing while traveling through Netherlands, New Guinea. He was last seen when his trading canoe capsized as he was rowing through a part of the country known as the Cannibal Coast. It was revealed that the Azmats, a vicious tribe who inhabited the area, captured, beheaded, and ate Michael. James Jameson Another American beneficiary with ties to cannibalism was James Jameson, heir to the Jameson Irish whiskey fortune. Though his, this time he was the one doing the cannibalizing, during an expedition to the Congo, he requested a witness cannibalism firsthand. The team's solution to purchase him a 10-year-old girl and watch her be cannibalized in front of him. Jameson wrote about the ordeal in his diary, accompanying them with sketches. Antron Big Lurch Singleton Antron Singleton, better known by his rapper name Big Lurch, made headlines in 2002, but not because of his music. While high on PCP, he had attacked his girlfriend, Elisa Allen. After stabbing her repeatedly in the chest, he cut her chest cavity open, pulled out her lung, and began eating it. He was found guilty of murder, and now lectures on the dangers of PCP. Clara Morova Clara Morova may take the prize for worst mother ever. When her sons were the young boys aged 10 and 14, she brought them into a cult that practiced cannibalism. Worse, though, than forcing them to engage in cult practices was that she subjected them to at home. She put them through torture, sexual assault, regular beatings, and meals comprised of their own flesh, cut from their still-alive bodies. Rick Gibson Perhaps the most shocking act of cannibalism on this list is that of Rick Gibson. 
1988 and again in 1989, Gibson ate human flesh in public in London, England. England has no law against cannibalism, which Gibson described as marvelous, meaning his public meals of human tonsil, canape, human testicle, ors, uh, or d'oeuvres were perfectly legal. Omema Nelson Omema Nelson is a former model who killed her abusive husband of one month and cannibalized him on Thanksgiving Day. According to her psychiatrist, she mixed his body parts with the leftover Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving turkey and cooked his ribs in barbecue sauce before eating them. Street Meat In 2010, a court sentenced three homeless men to 18 years in prison after it was revealed that they had murdered a man who lives on their street. To make matters worse, they had chopped up the man after his murder and sold his meat to a local kebab salesman. Even worse than that was the fact that no one could pinpoint where the sale had occurred, or if any of the bits of man had been sold. The SS Dumaru The crew of the SS Dumaru were forced into cannibalism due to their dire circumstances. When their ship was struck by lightning on its maiden voyage, the crew evacuated into lifeboats. Without supplies or fresh water, they ended up turning into cannibalism, consuming the bodies of their fellow crew members who died from exposure. Stephen Griffiths. He earned his gruesome nickname, the Crossbow Cannibal, from his preferred choice of weapon. In addition to a crossbow, he, had also, he was also known to use a samurai sword on his victims. Most notably, his final victim, a prostitute who he murdered in a hotel hallway in full view of CCTV. Afterwards, he waved his crossbow at the camera, retreated to his room, and ate his victim. Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571 Sometimes acts of cannibalism aren't intentional. The passengers of Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571 discovered that when they found themselves stranded on an Andes mountaintop after the plane crashed. While waiting for rescue, the passengers burned through their supplies quickly. Out of options on the snow-covered mountaintop, the living survived off of the bodies of the dead. Matthew Williams In 2014, Matthew Williams checked into a bed and breakfast in Wales. The next morning, the owner of the B&B awoke to a horrible sight. Williams was in his room, covered in blood, eating the body of a woman who had arrived in the middle of the night. When she confronted him, he ignored her, even ignoring the police as they arrived. Eventually, he had to be tased to stop eating, which proved to be too much for his body to handle. All right. Thanks for being with me today. Uh, this was a extremely difficult episode to get through. I had to start and stop so many times just because some of the details really kind of grossed me out. But with that being said, um, it was fascinating to learn about all of the history involved with it and everything, and I found that very fascinating. As far as myself, I would not partake in cannibalism, and I feel like in the future it might be more mainstream than it is today. So with that being said... I'm just saying, I feel like, in my own personal beliefs, and I haven't backed this up with anything, but I feel like it is a spiritual taboo 
and I don't prescribe to a specific religion. I'm just saying I feel like it is a spiritual taboo that you're crossing a line whenever you consume another human. Uh, so yeah, it's kind of like a opening a door <laughs> kind of thing. And I don't really like that. So with that being said, yeah, join us for future episodes. Um, hopefully they'll be a little spookier than this. This was more like spooky macabre, like I can't believe this happens. But future episodes, um, I want to do like possessions and gin and stuff like that. So stay tuned for that. Um, but yeah, make sure to join us on the Facebook page at Paranormal Stories Spooky Shiz. Um, spooky shiz in parentheses on the Facebook page group. Um, join us there. We post daily spooky memes and also update you with any content or upcoming things for future episodes. All right. So with that all being said, <laughs> and I hope most of you haven't lost your appetites, <laughs> or maybe you should. <laughs> all right. Stay spooky, my friends. <laughs>